You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. Steve said in his prayer, small but powerful. I'd rather be a powerful church, a small powerful church, than a large church without power. So I'm not sure if this slide ever made it to the screen last week. I had recommended two books that are very relevant to what we've been, been learning. One is called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. The other is called Destined for the Throne. The author is Paul Bilheimer. I'm not even sure if they're still in print. You'd have to go on and go online and see if you can find it. But both of these books deal with adversity, and I would highly recommend them. They give a whole new perspective. We're talking about developing a mindset towards adversity, opposition, persecution, all those things that go along with that or are part of that. These two books address that from a biblical perspective, and it's the best I've ever come across. It shaped my thinking. It changed my thinking towards living this life in this world as a follower of Christ. Don't waste your sorrows. Great titles, aren't they? Destined for the throne. Jess, you might as well come right away. Sometimes it's deeper into the message, and sometimes it's not. And today it's not. As Jess gets to the mic, we'll stand. You know the drill. We stand to honor God's word as she reads it to us. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28. Check, check. Mic check. Okay. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Listeria, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. <laughs> Those words are hard to say. Where they strengthened the believers, they encouraged them to continue in faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They then traveled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia. You're doing good. (laughs) Why'd you give me all these words? (laughs) They preached the word in Perga that went down to Italia. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, too. And they stayed there with believers for a long time. Thanks. Great job. Maybe seated. So we're picking up the account of Paul and Barnabas as they finish up their official missionary tour. If you heard just say at the end of that passage, the work that they had completed... The work that God had given them to do, they had completed. Um, Sneak peek into the future. This is the first missionary tour. 
There will be at least two more official missionary tours involving the Apostle Paul and some others that we'll be looking at in Acts. For now, Paul and Barnabas are heading back to Antioch of Syria from where they were originally sent out. You should remember Acts 13.1, while the church in Antioch was worshiping and praying, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit spoke something to the church. Just a side note, it's not in my notes, but we're going to be moving into days where the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church, and we want to have ears to hear. And I don't mean just speaking through me when I preach the word, but speaking through us to each other in official gatherings and in unofficial gatherings, formally and informally. We need to open our ears now to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. But what he said to that church at that time was, set apart Paul and Barnabas for me, for the special work to which I have called them. And now we've been looking at that work, and we call it the first official missionary journey. Today's title is Retrace, Rest, and Regroup. They're going to retrace their steps through the cities in which they've been ministering until they arrive back at Antioch, Syria, where then they will rest and they will regroup for their next Holy Spirit-given assignment. They were very active on their return to Antioch, Syria, and that's what we want to look at today. We looked at what they were doing on their way out. Now we'll be looking at what they did on their way back. Are you with me? You got that? Are you interested in this? There is some dispute among Bible scholars how long this first missionary tour took. This first missionary trip. Some feel it was one year. Some feel it was up to four years, depending on who you read. So somewhere between one and four years, Paul and Barnabas were out on this, on this very specific work. I'm just not sure, and neither are most Bible scholars. Between one and four. So verse four, chapter 14, verse 21. The subtitle in many of your Bibles will say, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch of Syria. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. Then they traveled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia. They preached the word in Perga. Then they went down to Italia. And finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where the journey had begun. Now, when I come into the pulpit... I usually have some overarching purpose that this is what God wants to do or say today. And sometimes I don't. And today I don't. There is real no, there is not any, there is really no one specific overarching purpose to this message. This is more or less a hodgepodge. Did you ever hear that word? A hodgepodge. It's a mixture of This is more or less a hodgepodge of information and points. And what I want to try to do is make some relevant application of the points. This is a message that will apply to the church, our church, the church, in these days in which we live, and especially in the days to come. I guess if there's an overarching purpose, it's a preparatory message. It's preparing us. It's going to teach us something that we want to know 
as we move forward as the church within the larger church. Paul and Barnabas had just finished up the work in Derby. That's as far as they went, Derby. They decided they had gone far enough. Um, my guess is, my own opinion is, the Holy Spirit told them they had gone far enough. He was in charge of this deal. He was orchestrating it. He was directing it. That's where they were supposed to go on this first journey. There will be two more journeys that send them to other places and further out. So they began to retrace their steps. They returned to Lystra, then Iconium, then Antioch, Pisidia. They're just going back the way they came. For you geography buffs, you see the, the, my red line disappeared. So how can that be? User error, what? I think it's the iPad. Erased my red, wait a minute, persecution and opposition. Got in there and erased my red line. So you can't, what I'm going to say, you can't really do. See the hook at the top? Start there and simply trace back. If you can see it, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia. Then you come down through Phrygia, Pamphylia, Italia. Pick up the yellow line. And the yellow line, they boarded a ship there in Italia. And the yellow line is them sailing back through the Mediterranean to Antioch of, of, of Syria. Yeah. Huh. Well, for whatever reason, on the way back, do you notice they didn't, they didn't go over to Cyprus, which is, had been their first stop on the way out. They went to all of those other places, but they bypassed Cyprus coming back to their starting point. Doesn't give any reason why. It's just factual that they did. So 1421, again, with a different emphasis, after preaching the good news in Derbia, that's the furthest, remotest point they got to on their trip, after preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to these other cities. Notice the bold type, making many disciples. In the midst of all the opposition, in the midst of the persecution, being stoned and left for dead and, and being worshipped uh, as gods and, and lifted up and, and just all the things they went through, in the midst of that, in the midst of that trouble, in the midst of that adversity that they faced in those cities, in the midst of that, and despite all that, God was at work through them. Many were coming to know the Lord. I'm sure there were times when the apostles questioned God, questioned if he was working, questioned even if they were still in his will, did they miss it somehow because they're facing all this adversity. We do that, don't we? It became quite difficult for them at, time, at times. You know, they were chased out of one city, stoned in another city. But I, what I want us to know, what I believe God wants us to know is we said it before, we're going to say it again because we need to hear it. The church in America and in Western, the Western Hemisphere needs to hear this. We must not allow opposition, persecution, troubles, adversity, all of that stuff of life 
to cause us to think God is not working. We do, though, don't we? To cause us to think that we're not in his will. That something strange and unusual is happening to us because we're facing so much trouble. And as I've said many times, it can be mildly annoying or it can be life-threatening and anywhere in between. Adversity is not a valid measure of if we are in God's will or on his plan. Often it can be a sign that we are. The devil doesn't appreciate Christians telling others about Jesus. That's it, two of you? (laughs) The devil doesn't appreciate Christians telling others about Jesus. He will make it as difficult as he can. He may even erase the pastor's line, red line, when he's trying to preach. So that it looks foolish. No, instead of coming to a conclusion that maybe God's not there or working, maybe we stepped out of his will, maybe he doesn't care, we need to look for God in the midst of these things. We were praying before the service, we always do. We pray up here at about 8.30 or 29, anyone's welcome. We pray in that room at about 20 of 10, quarter of 10. And one of the things we were praying is, We've asked God to give us ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to the church. That's biblical. And we're going to continue to ask that. We need also to start asking that God would give us eyes to see, to see what he's doing. The issue isn't that God is not working. Another good place for an amen. Amen. The issue isn't that God is not working, right, Tenley? Because Jesus said very clearly My Father is always working. My Father, God, is always at work, and so am I. So there's no issue with whether he's working or not. The issue is our awareness of it. The the issue is us seeing it. If you remember Elijah and his servant Gehazi, and they were under attack, and they were completely outnumbered, and Gehazi was freaking out, and Elijah was calm as a cucumber... And so Elijah simply said to the Lord, open my servant's eyes so that he might see what I see. God opened Gehazi's eyes and he saw the army of the Lord surrounding the armies that were surrounding them. And Elijah said, Gehazi, there's more with us than are with them. It wasn't a matter that God wasn't there, that they weren't in God's will and it wasn't his plan. The issue was they didn't see it. That's our issue. We don't see it. God, open our eyes to see, along with ears to hear what your spirit is saying and what your spirit is doing, what your right hand is doing, what your mighty right arm is doing in our world today and in our lives today and in our families today. Open our eyes to see. In the midst of all the opposition, in the midst of the persecution and everything that Paul and Barnabas were facing, God was at work and make, many people came to know the Lord. So the next two verses say, they strengthened the believers, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships 
to enter the kingdom of God. On the return trip, the focus was different. On the return trip, their purpose was different. On the way out, the focus was evangelistic. It was evangelism. Telling those who didn't know Jesus about Jesus as Savior. On the way back, the focus was discipleship. Discipling those who had come to know Jesus. Now, several thoughts from this verse that we should give our attention. There are the emboldened words and phrases. And the first thought is they strengthened and they encouraged the believers. This is a word from the Lord to the church today for what is coming in the days ahead very shortly. Strengthening and encouraging new believers is a critical part of discipleship. When we birth a physical baby, we don't congratulate the doctors and congratulate the husband and wife and all that and leave the birthing room and leave the baby there, do we? What will happen to that baby? Baby will die. When people come to know Christ, Scripture parallels them with newborns. You're born again. You're a new baby. They can't be left on their own. They will die. They need to be discipled. I am so thankful that once I got saved, and there were a number of times I wondered if this was really the way I should go, and if it wasn't for somebody coming alongside and discipling me, mentoring me, teaching me, coaching me, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'm not a self-made man. Many others have made me who I am today. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Strengthening and encouraging new believers is a critical part of discipleship. We're instructed not just to lead folks to the Lord or introduce folks to Christ. We're told to disciple them. Go into all the world and make disciples. There's some really interesting thoughts. You know, I'm like a I'm geared to be like a teacher, to be a studier. That stuff excites me. It doesn't excite all of you, but that's why I'm here, so you can do what God's given you to do, and I can do what God has given me to do. And what turns me on is studying out words, especially God's word. So the word strengthen, the main thought of this word. Now listen to this, to, to support, to uphold, or to hold up. The word strengthen means to make, to make strong in order to support or hold a weight. To make strong in order to prevent collapse or giving way. Think about that. The word strengthen means to make strong in order to prevent something from collapsing, giving way, under weight. Strengthen a roof so it does not collapse during winter snows. You strengthen a roof so that it can withstand the winter snows, the winter storms, the weight of the snow. The Christian idea in discipleship is this, and this is where it makes so much sense and, and gets someone like me very excited. The Christian idea here in strengthening is that we teach, we train, we equip, we give new believers all that they need to keep them from collapsing under the weight of life 
as a follower of Christ in the world. Doesn't that make sense? We strengthen each other. We strengthen them. We disciple new believers so that when these storms of life come in, they don't collapse and they don't give way because they're strong enough to bear that weight. Does that make sense to you, Steve? Aren't you glad somebody discipled you and didn't just let you hanging as a newborn babe in Christ? Because you had plenty of storms come against you that could have caused you to collapse. Well, that restroom could have collapsed. If you want to know more about that, ask either I or Steve if you don't know the story. So strengthening and encouraging. Here's what encourage means. The main thought to the word encourage is to come alongside of, to comfort, to console, to exhort. Exhort simply means, hey, you know, that might not be the best decision. Here, you might want to think about this. That's exhorting someone into the right path, into the correct path. It means to cheer on. If you've been watching any of the NCAA tournament, if you're watching Duke tear up and tear through the field, yeah, now they're going to lose. Right, Rich? But you see, every team has cheerleaders there. Why? You know, some of us might think that's kind of fruitless, but there is a role. There's a role for the cheerleaders, and it's to encourage their team. It's encourage their team to do their best. It's to encourage their team to continue the effort, to persevere and, perse- and persist. Don't give up. Fight hard. Fight, fight, fight. We're going to win tonight. Any former cheerleaders in here? <laughs> rah, rah, rah. Shiskumba. Let's go, boys. This is a great illustration, though, for the word encouragement because that's exactly what it means. To encourage is to offer someone what they need to stay strong. To encourage is to offer someone to continue to persevere and to not give up. You see those poor cheerleaders down there sometimes, the team's losing 70 to nothing. and Come on, boys, we got this one. Rich's dad, Joe, tells a funny story. When he played football for Columbia, they had a terrible team. Actually, the, one of the years he played, a couple of his years were very good. But one of the years they played, Columbia set a record. It's still in the record books. Most points scored against you in a season. <laughs> so they were losing like 50 to nothing, 70 to nothing. And the coach called them together before the game. And he said, now listen. We can go out there and we can lose 70 to nothing. Or we can go out there and we can pull together as a team and we can do everything we need to do and, and we can guts it out and we'll only lose 25 to nothing. <laughs> True story. And what kind of encouragement is that, right? But this is what Paul and Barnabas were doing with the believers in these cities of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who had come to know Jesus. On the way back trip... It was about discipleship. They were strengthening those who had come to know the Lord. They were making them strong and mature. They were encouraging them. They were exhorting them to continue. And no matter what, don't give up. Now, interesting, I find, is what they were actually teaching them, what what the focus of their teaching was 
in order to strengthen and encourage them. They're reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And when I first read that, I was like, no! Last week I told you we were done with persecution and opposition. And here it is again. We must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Don't think it's strange, the fiery trial that's coming upon you, as though something unusual is happening. Don't be surprised. It hit me that Paul and Barnabas thought it was important for these new believers to know that they would face many hardships as followers of Christ before this thing was over. Hardships, another good word, means troubles, tribulation, difficulties, any kind of adversity. That would include opposition and persecution to the gospel. It's anything that causes physical, mental, or spiritual pressure or distress. It seems like on the way back trip, they were emphasizing two principles, two lessons for the new believers. And these lessons were intended to strengthen and encourage the new believers. Both of these lessons relate to adversity. Of all the things Paul and Barnabas could teach them as new believers, one of the first things, how to handle adversity in life as a follower of Christ. You find that interesting? <laughs> Do you even know what I said? <laughs> I didn't think so. That's our life, 45 years right there. <laughs> She's encouraging me. Got it. Here were the two lessons that he was teaching those new believers. Expect and anticipate hardship. Remain true. Continue on. Endure. Persevere. Stay strong through hardship. Hey, these are two principles we just covered, right? 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 Thank you. These are two principles, two of the three, that we just covered the last couple weeks. The one that's not mentioned here is that rejoice and be glad in it. We know that's a principle. But they stress to these new believers, expect hardship and stay true, remain true through it. They were discipling these new believers on how to be effective, fruitful, mature followers of Christ in their generation. A starting point for this is to develop a proper mindset towards hardship. How to think about it and how to respond to it properly. Not much has changed, has it? Here we are today, and this is what we're learning. We need to develop a proper biblical mindset towards adversity in order to be effective, fruitful, mature followers of Jesus in our generation. You know, we need to stand up against the, the devil in these days, Steve, again, he prayed that. The, the day of the silent church is over. We need to take a stand. We can't. That got your attention. We can't. 
Because all he has to do is pull one little string, bring a little bit of adversity into our lives, and we're wiped out. Not all of us, and not all the time, but generally speaking of the Christian church in America, a little bit of adversity goes a long way in stopping us from serving Christ because we're so self-focused. We just are. That's not even being critical because it's not willful. We just are. And God's trying to change that mindset in us. Just read a verse in my devotions, I think it was in Peter, that said, you know, stop living for yourself and for the remainder of your days on earth. Live for that which pleases God. We're easy pickings for the enemy. We're easy to stop. We don't have stick to And we don't really have a proper mindset towards it. That's where it has to start. To think properly is then to act properly. To think rightly is to act rightly. To think wrongly is to act wrongly. To think wrongly is to respond wrongly. Well, how can God be in this? Why would he allow me to go through this? You know, we do say that, and I understand it. But think about what we're saying. That's like the epitome of selfishness. Why would God allow me to go through this? Like, who is God? And he could do anything he wants and put us through it just for no reason, but that isn't God. When he does allow us to go through it, he promises he's going to work it out for great good. And yet we're moaning and complaining and bailing out and say, why me? This is the last thing I need. When I hear people see that, I feel like saying, do you hear all the personal pronouns in your statement? The focus has become me, I, not others. Back to what we wanted to say today, as we learn this, as our mindset begins to shift and we learn how to properly handle adversity, it's going to then have to become a primary part of what we tell new believers as we disciple them, along with many other things, of course. But it has to be a primary part. Paul and Barnabas had a limited amount of time to share with these new believers, and they thought one of the most important things to tell them is how to handle adversity because it's going to come. The day is rapidly approaching. You hear me? The day is rapidly approaching when discipleship is going to become the primary ministry in the church. Get ready, expect it, prepare for it, because it's coming. As God brings in the harvest, many of us are going to be called to disciple new believers. We're going to be called to take somebody or some people under our wing and disciple them and teach them about Jesus and strengthen them and encourage them so they don't collapse under the weight of the stuff that's going to come against them now that they became new believers. You know, we got addictions. We all got addictions. Satan uses them against us. When we try to step out to serve God, he just pulls up the addiction card and back we go. It shouldn't be like that, and it doesn't have to be like that.
The unfortunate thing is, and think back to your own discipleship, and some of you probably didn't even, didn't even have anybody to come alongside and disciple you. But for those of you who were blessed enough to have that, think back through that. This aspect of our discipleship is often overlooked. We're taught so many things, but we're not really taught, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you, as though something strange was happening, and here's how you handle it. Expect it and prepare for it. Be glad and rejoice in it. Persevere through it. We have a discipleship series here in the church. Twelve books and some other peripheral ones too. We got twelve books. And I just got curious when I was preparing this message. And I went and I pulled out those twelve books. And I looked through them. And I looked at the topics of the twelve books. How many of them do you think was on, were on this topic? Zero. I was hard-pressed to find it even mentioned in those 12 books that we use to disciple new believers. And it's all good stuff. And it's all stuff new believers need to hear. But conspicuously missing was this piece. I think in like book four or five, there's one page that talks about where it said to Timothy, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus should expect persecution. But that's about all it says. So no wonder we have people coming to know the Lord. They're here a little while, and then they're gone. Because the weight of the world came in, and they collapsed under it. If you don't teach new believers how to handle adversity from a biblical perspective, then when adversity does strike, and it will... New believers will be caught off guard. They'll be surprised. And actually, I should pause and say, people who have been in the faith for a longer time who haven't been prepared for this will also get caught off guard. Surprised, thinking something strange or abnormal is happening to them. Their world is then rocked. Their faith is shaken. Quite possibly, if no mature believer comes around them to help them, they may fall away. They may turn away from God, and we may never see them in here again. crucial. It's critical. As God brings in the harvest, and he will, he is, we need to be prepared because many of us are going to be called to take somebody under our wing and help them become a strong, mature Christian who won't collapse under the weight of living in this world as a believer. There's another important thing they did on the way back trip. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. When they traveled back to Antioch of Syria, they reported everything God had done through them to the church, and they stayed there with the believers a long time. Before they left the area, in each city that they, they had formed a fellowship or a church, they appointed elders or leaders or overseers of those churches. The elders were to govern. The elders were to direct the affairs of the church. The elders were to care for the needs of the folks in the church. And this is what I find very exciting. And we're a prime example, and I'm going to mention in a moment. 
They appointed the appointed elders, those who Paul and Barnabas appointed to be elders. They most likely came from new believers because it's only been one to four years since they went through the first time. So these guys couldn't have been believers for any more than four years and probably much less. You don't have to wait till you're 50 or 60 to be a leader in the church. It's not so as... It's not so much how long you've been a Christian, it's how much you have grown and matured since you become a Christian. These appointed elders most likely came to know Christ through Paul and Barnabas on the way out. They were willing to be discipled. They were those who were growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. They were those who were maturing in Christ. They were those who were persevering in their faith and not giving up. They were those who had determined not to go back. These are most likely, at least, at least <clears throat> the folks, that, the men that Paul and Barnabas appointed as elders. We're just about closed. We're moving towards the closing. We're just about finished. The New Testament has a lot to say regarding elders in the church. The New Testament gives the requirements to be an elder. It talks about the role and the responsibility of an elder. It talks about special rewards in heaven for being a faithful elder. It talks about how the church should respond to and treat their elders and more. It's actually a fascinating study. If you're like me and you like to study, studying out the, the, the New Testament role of elders is a very fascinating study, should you ever care to check it out. But at any rate, Paul and Barnabas formed a church and they appointed elders to lead the church in each of these cities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Then they returned to Syria of Antioch. Once they got to Syria, back to Syria, they rested. They regrouped for their next assignment. Part of that time while they were resting and regrouping, they were testifying to the church what God had done through them. All the experiences they had, good and bad. And it says they stayed there in Syria, in Antioch, Syria, for a long while. I have one more comment before we close. And Tiff, this, this might be something that would catch your attention. I really look forward when I know that we're having a CMA missionary, where missionaries come to our church. Because I know they're going to come and they're going to share with us, just like Paul and Barnabas did, what God's doing in their part of the world. And that should strengthen and that should encourage us for what God wants to do in our part of the world. Now, COVID, can't believe we're still saying that word, but COVID has made it hard for this to happen in the last two years. There were, there were restrictions, not, not just here on us. Other countries were under more restrictions than us, many of them. Our missionaries couldn't get out. They really couldn't even get here. If they did get here, you know all about that. So it's been hard the last two years. I think we did have one family we brought in. But we hope to get back on track in the near future and get some missionaries in here and share with us what God's doing in their part of the world to encourage and strengthen us for what God wants to do here. Okay, I want to stop there. And I have a special closing. Chris Firestein, if you'll come to the mic. As Chris comes... The elders who are here today, um, would you stand and would you come forward and just line yourselves up, maybe starting here and go across this way? 
facing the congregation. I guess we're missing who? Josh and Brandon. Well, you can stand wherever you want. No, it doesn't matter. I just didn't want anybody standing in front of Chris, that's all. So we got Ron moseying on up here yet. And don't forget that we are missing Brandon and we're missing Josh. They're a vital part of this elder board. So this is, the, this is CCF elder board plus, then there's two. I say this every year at the annual meeting, but you're not all there at the annual meeting. It's true every year, without a doubt. A primary reason God can bless, has blessed, and works so mightily in this fellowship is because of these men, because of the quality and the faithfulness of our elders. I know a lot of pastors. I'm familiar with a lot of churches. And there are some good ones out there, but there's none better. There may be some as good as, but there's none better. Not one of the churches I know has a better elder board than we have right here. We are so blessed by the Lord. Also something to note. You saw in our text today that Paul and Barnabas appointed rather new believers to be elders when they went back through. They appointed elders who had come to know the Lord through their ministry. Fifty percent of our elder board, that's four out of eight, came to know the Lord through and were discipled through the ministry of this church. And then God called them to be elders. We promote from within. We promote from within. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing for me, at least, to see. I don't know of many pastors who can say that. 50% of my elder board came to know the Lord through the ministry of this church and were discipled into leadership through this church. Now they serve as elders. Praise God. Let's recognize them together, would you? Yeah, would you stand, please? Stand because Chris is going to pray. When Chris is finished praying, he's going to pray for the elders. Then he's going to pray just to close the the message out. When he's done praying, Sonny, then we'll bring the band forward and we'll close in worship. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. We owe everything to you, absolutely everything. Everything of our lives goes to you, Father. We are so grateful for everything that you do for us, Father. And Lord, uh, these elders, I just want to lift them up in the name of Jesus. They, they play a very special role in this church, Lord. They oversee, you know, a lot of the things that go on here, spiritually speaking. And they speak uh, good things into our lives, Lord. And they protect us. They kind of stand in the gap for us, for, you know, from the bad things happening in our lives, Lord. I, I just thank you for that, Lord. I just want to lift them up. I know that they got people that they're, they're assigned to pray for, Lord. And I, and I personally see them carry that out diligently. And uh, there's a lot to be said about that, Lord. But I also I see, personally speaking, uh, prophecies being rolled into my life from my elder. And uh, I know that's going on for, for all the other uh, congregants here, Father, as they're being lifted up and prayed for by these, this group of elders, Lord. So I just want to pray uh, a special prayer, I guess to say, of, of protection over their lives, Lord, because because of the role they play, they come under severe attack. 
And I just want to lift them up in the name of Jesus, mm -hmm. the blood of Christ on their lives, strong, powerful angels surrounding them, mm. protecting them as they, as they carry out the role of the protection of the congregants of this church, Lord. Give them special wisdom to, uh, you know, carry out the decision-making process the, of all the things that affect the church and keep the church strong. And, uh, Father, I just, I just thank you so much. I hardly know what to say about these guys. It's a special, it is a special group of guys, Father. It really is. And uh, I think that's seen and known well here. So thank you for them, Lord. And, Heavenly Father, I just want to pray, too, to, to close out this service, Lord. We heard a, a powerful message about persecution. It's not uh, something we want, but it is something necessary for us to develop and, and strengthen, Lord. We would never go to a weight room to see how much, how little weight we can, you know, lift, Father. We, we need to be strengthened and stretched and pushed to our limits to, to an extent so that we grow, Father. And you're, you're asking us to grow, and that, that requires exercise it requires persecution to some degree father but we know that you're also faithful you don't press us over the over the edge father and i thank you for that lord but help us to be thankful for the the persecution that we get knowing that it is making us strength stronger if we turn the things over to you lord and allow you to work through the situations that are pressing on us um, give us the patience necessary to, to to move through the persecutions father because it's easy to lose control quick and uh, it seems, too, that in these days we're being uh, pressed on all sides, Lord. we got threats that uh, I feel like are, are pretty big, and uh, they loom over us, Father. But we know that you're the, you're the God that we trust in, that you, know, you offer us to run into you as a strong tower. So, Lord, whenever we get too pressed, we have that opportunity to roll to you. And that's, that strong tower could be our closet where we can meet you. And we also know that we're coming in agreement, most likely, with one of our elders, too, because they'll be praying with us, too. So, in a sense, we're coming into agreement and prayer for good things to happen in our lives, Lord. Uh, you created a system of, of prayer and agreement and all that kind of stuff here on, on earth. And uh, we utilize that, Lord. Help us, to, help us to utilize that to bring about good results, Lord. We are the soul of this world. Uh, it, it's our job to show love, Lord. We're living in a hateful world right now, a lot of hate. But that's not us. We're called love. And it's really hard to love people who that are, are so easy to hate. So, <laughs> Father, I think that's that's some of the, that's one of the biggest persecutions, Lord, pressing upon us. Some people are easy to hate, but we gotta love them. And um, you know, we gotta put down our weapons and give hugs. This can only be accomplished by the power of God. Lord, you sent your only son to die for us. You know, you know what persecution's all about. And from that act of sacrifice and kindness, you know, we, we, we have everlasting life with you, Father. With you. This is temporary, Father. Very, very, very temporary. So, Lord, I just praise you. Uh, you know, when we leave here, we're going to get right back at that pressure. We might end up sort of forgetting for a bit what, what we went on here, but Lord, bring that to our memory as, as we move forward here. I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org.